Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim, he's Alex, and today we are reflecting on a momentous event in the history of Cadillac. For the first time, Cadillac has the potential to reclaim its tagline, standard of the world, and it's doing it with the Celestic. Alex, we first saw the car as a prototype concept mm -hmm. mid-summer. What was your impression then? My main impression was, are they really going to build this thing? And can it be as fantastically expensive and still be a Cadillac as they're claiming? And it appears that both are on track to happen. It appears that it's going to be Rolls-Royce and Bentley expensive. And it appears they're actually going to be building us an 18-foot-long sedan. I'm genuinely surprised that so much of this made its way from the concept to production. By the way, most of the time, the journey from concept car to production car isn't four months so we have to assume that this decision was made a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, but the biggest change, it seems to be that video camera rearview mirrors have been replaced with actual rearview mirrors. And that's about it. 3D mm -hmm. printing, folded metal construction techniques created just for this car, uh, elaborate aluminum castings. All of the things that underpin the car are basically ready to go from a production standpoint. The bodywork is mostly carbon fiber. The chassis is mostly aluminum. It's going to be a $300,000 price of entry. And then the sky's the limit. You can get footwells trimmed in leather. You can get components of yep. your animal hair, that, you know, uh, a, a favorite jacket, guitar strings. Almost anything can be physically integrated into this interior by request. Everything is going to be paint to sample, which means that you can effectively choose any color on the car. And the same is true of the interior, where you can get carbon fiber, any wood you want, leather, metal treatments. Uh, the car is going to have potentially $100,000 worth of potential options. So the price starts at 300 k and it goes way, way up. Yep. It is 18 feet long. It is longer than a short wheelbase Escalade. And it's only a four-seater. So this is a lifestyle car. This is an image car. It's a statement car for GM. I don't expect it to be a moneymaker, but I am surprised they stuck with the car format instead of doing like a, you know, like a GLS Maybach type deal. I mean, who knows? It could make money because Rolls-Royce and Bentley occasionally make some cash here and there. It's, it's entirely possible. Uh, what I really want to know is, can you get a chrome one? Can Justin Bieber order a chrome one? Well, that's easy. You just get it wrapped. Or is chrome not an op? Well, but for $300,000, I want it to roll out the factory full on chrome. That's what I would want. But at any rate, all seriousness, uh, it is interesting that it's going to share so much with the rest of the Ultium family platform of vehicles as well. Although it's kind of sort of Ultium, because obviously a lot of the structure has been changed for this vehicle to be the carbon fiber intensive, aluminum intensive thing that none of the other Ultium family vehicles are. The one twist with that, though, is I'm wondering how heavy it's going to be because Ultium family vehicles are all really heavy and it's not going to charge especially quickly because the fast charging is reserved for the 24 module versions of the Ultium platform and at the moment that's only going to be pickup trucks. What I've heard is around 6,000 pounds. So in terms of what it's actually going to weigh, it's going to be around six grand, which is not all that much when you consider that a loaded EQS is already within about 150 pounds of that. And the EQS is a much smaller vehicle. 
Um, and then there's also the charging, which Alex mentioned. Some changes have been made to the Ultium structure here in order to maintain a lower profile and also a lower floor in the vehicle. The battery modules themselves are positioned horizontally as opposed to vertically, which is going to create structural constraints on how fast you can cool them when charging and discharging. And partly for that reason, that's why the vehicle is going to have a 200 kilowatt charging rate, at least if we mm -hmm. believe what's been put out so far. The battery is going to be 111 kilowatts, which of course is nowhere near the size of what you get on a Hummer EV. So Ultium can potentially right. be a lot more commodious. But you are looking at right now 111 kilowatts and a 200 kilowatt charging rate which for a vehicle that's going to be a 2024 model year doesn't seem all that fast, but I'm actually kind of hoping they might surprise us because it may be that after a year or two of experience with these batteries, they feel like they can add, I don't know, 20, 30 kilowatts of charging rate and be a bit more aggressive with the charging curve. But that's mostly wishful thinking at this point. Yes. We need to talk about Ultium and the DC fast charge rates because there is a little bit of confusion and GM has done some kind of funky advertising dances around Ultium and its charge rates. Remember that in Ultium, we have these modular series of batteries. You can have up to 24 modules. That's how we get the Hummer up to just about 800 volts and 350 kilowatts of DC fast charging peak capability. But the DC fast charge rate in any Ultium family vehicle is going to be based off of the number of modules it has. And the fewer modules, less than 24 it has, that's the sliding scale down to the DC fast charge rate. So some of the smaller Ultium vehicles, they're going to charge relatively slowly because the entire system voltage is dictated by this number of modules. So Celestic, it's not going to hold as many uh, modules as the Hummer EV or the upcoming Silverado EV. Same thing with the Lyric. And that's why their charge rates are lower. The Celestic appears to have a bit more capacity, more modules than we find in the Lyric, which is probably why its charge rate is a little bit higher. Now, it's interesting because this vehicle is going to be focused on customization. It's going to be powerful, but not absurdly powerful by EV standards. We're talking about 600 horsepower, 640 pound-feet of torque. It's going to be a two-motor, not a three-motor. It will be all-wheel drive. It is going to be very plush with magneto-rheological dampers, air springs, and Cadillac's first application of active anti-roll bars. So it's going to be well-sorted from a chassis standpoint. And that's something Cadillac's done particularly well in mm -hmm. recent years. Rolling stock is 23 inches. It's gonna have a custom Michelin tire. Um, and it's going to have a hatchback layout, which I think is kind of critical. I, I see that as the way forward for four-door luxury cars. And I really think that Mercedes with the EQS and Tesla with the Model S were kind of on the vanguard there. Um, but it is a four-seat vehicle and you're going to get an incredibly plush cabin. Aside from the customization, the ability to get any upholstery and trim you want, every chair is going to be heated and ventilated and massaging and power operated. Uh, in the front, you get a 55-inch wall-to-wall screen with autonomous operation, driver and passenger. Obviously, the driver can't watch the passenger's movie. There's always that safeguard. Um, there is a, I, I want to say, 12.6-inch screen in the back that acts as effectively as a console um, no, pardon me. It's an eight inch screen that acts as a console for the rear passengers. And then each of them has a 12.6 inch mm -hmm. screen. Uh, so it's and then there's a 38 speaker AKG audio system, which I'm sure is going to be great for making your ears bleed and running down the battery. <laughs> it's going to be a very cush car. It's not a performance. Yeah, car. I am. I'm OK with that. And I 
think that this is the car that GM could have been built for a long time, but for some reason hasn't. GM's done a really good job with their combination magnetic and air ride suspensions. We see essentially a similar theme in the independent suspension full-size SUVs from GM. So this is basically borrowed out of that into this Ultium platform vehicle. Um, GM's also done an excellent job with these autonomy levels in their vehicles. Super Cruise is by far the best hands-off-the-wheel steering system. We don't have very many in the U.S. right now, but this is by far the best, and they really have been pushing the the, the edge with that system. Uh, it's really smooth. It's easy to use. It's easy to understand how it operates, and it's very confidence-inspiring in a way that we cannot describe the Ford system or the Lexus system. And of course, full self-driving is beta in, in Tesla, so technically we can't even count that, but definitely ahead of what we see in autopilot from Tesla, which is a hands-on-the-wheel system, not a hands-off-the-wheel system. So if you're thinking about what you find in a Rolls-Royce or Bentley, this makes a lot of sense because the tech is significantly ahead of where we find Rolls-Royce and Bentley right now. I've Without always wondered. I've always wondered why is it that the Rolls Royce customer, who most likely also has a whole lot of other vehicles in their garage, how is it that they're okay with two generations old iDrive? How is it that a Bentley shopper is okay with Audi's MMI system from 2010? Uh, it blows my mind. But here in Celestic, we'll get the latest system from GM, and it's going to be snappy. It's going to be stylish. I actually really like the the Android-based operating system that we find from them. So there's a lot of a lot of possibilities there if GM is really continuing to push the envelope as far as the software development. Without a doubt, I think the answer to how the Rolls-Royce and Bentley customer can deal with these outdated interfaces is that in much of the world where these are sold, chauffeurs will be the only ones who have to deal with them. Mm -hmm. The other that's thing, is, yeah. especially in China, um, other thing that's a big point, um, Alex talks about Super Cruise and, you know, it's a marketing term, but this is going to be GM's first application of Ultra Cruise. It's not going to be available year one in the Celestic. The car is going to be available 2023. You'll take delivery. It's got all the hardware on board to enable what is probably best described as a level three system. So it's everything Super Cruise mm -hmm. can do. Yep. Uh, plus, it's going to have limited off-highway capability that Super Cruise with its geofencing did not have. Uh, this will be something you get as part of the price of the car. It's not like BMW's ridiculous feature subscription thing. Um, but it will not be ready year one. All of the hardware, though, will be in place to make it active in mm -hmm. year two. And I think that's a big deal uh, because, for me, the less attention I have to pay to my autonomous car, <laughs> the more likely I am to want the feature. When I have to have my hand on a wheel, yes. any system that forces me to have my hand on a wheel, I may as well be doing the brain work because yes. I'm already in the driving position and I'm paying attention. Yeah. I mean, here's the clue. It's, it is no level of autonomy in my book if your hands are on the wheel. This is level of autonomy zero. They might want to say it's level one or level two or whatever. It is level zero because your hands are on the wheel. You're supposed to still be driving. It's not even semi-autonomous at this point. The level of autonomy that we find in Super Cruise really is the entry level point for autonomy in the way that most people think about them. And I have a big beef with the way that a lot of outlets cover semi-autonomous systems like Highway Driving Assistant from Hyundai or Genesis or Kia, how they cover autopilot, et cetera. They're like, oh, well, you know, uh, this system, it doesn't do terribly good of a job of staying in its lane line. You know, it kind of veers off here and there. Well, no shit, Sherlock. It's not meant for that. It's meant for you to have your hands on the wheel the whole time. And if your hands are not on the wheel, then you're doing it wrong and you're testing it wrong because it was never designed for that. 
only a small number of systems were designed for you to take your hands off the wheel. And currently, they're essentially only available from General Motors, from Ford, from Lexus, and oddly enough, from Nissan with the new Aria. So now I think the biggest problem here is not the car. I think the car is going to be great. I think the biggest problem is you're going to have to order it through a Cadillac dealer, which means oftentimes you're going to be in a dealer that's sharing floor space with GMC, Buick, sometimes Chevrolet. You go to an AutoNation dealership that sells these things and you spend hours dealing with a person you'd never ordinarily want to spend any time with as he fumbles through the paperwork and wastes your time and your money and your energy. This is not going to be a luxury purchase experience. Cadillac's doing everything they can to make it bespoke. Go to the Warren Michigan Technical Center, work with the designer there to create your car, or they'll send that person to you. But ultimately, that person is not going to take your money and make the sale. This car needs a Porsche dealership level of experience, and it's going to get potentially a Chevy dealership level of experience. I'm I'm intrigued to see how hands-off the dealership can possibly be, because with the whole bespoke ordering process, it it leads you to think that perhaps they could say, well, the transaction occurs at the dealer, but the dealer is going to send someone to you to do the paperwork. I would assume for the kind of profit the dealership would make, they would send the finance dealer to your home. But I'm wishful thinking here because we don't know that at all. But I would hope that a Cadillac dealer would understand that and they would get the order and then they would send someone to someone to do the process. They don't even need to step into the grungy Cadillac dealer sandwiched between GMC and Chevy. Yeah, and possibly Buick SUVs. Honestly, we'll have some idea, not a perfect idea, but some idea based on how they deal with the sales of the Escalade V because at $150,000, that's a price point where you deserve a level of bespoke service because you could easily Mm -hmm. spend that much money on an AMG Benz or a Porsche 911 or, I mean, any number of high luxury borderline exotic cars. So if you're still getting the standard treatment when you buy an Escalade V, I would be very surprised to see the dealer. Maybe GM realizes it's going to have a crisis on its hands and it intervenes. We've still got a year before this thing becomes available for, for delivery. So we'll see. They're only going to make about 400 to 500 a year. Production capacity is capped at two a day. They won't have more than six cars in production at any given time. And it will be a handcrafted production process. So once they put all the money and time into that, I wouldn't be shocked if GM realizes it's got a problem on its hands at the dealer level. And I wouldn't be shocked if maybe they ghost shop a few dealers on the Escalade V just to see what they can expect. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I'm I'm going to be intrigued to see if it feels worth the price tag. That is my one concern. Um, how much of the interior is shared with other vehicles. Obviously, window switches, et cetera, we can expect that. Um, They're making a big deal out of some of their production processes that really aren't much of a big deal when you're talking about the actual materials engineering process of the laser cutting and the laser ablating things that they're doing with this and that. Not really a big deal. Um, But how much of that translates to, to customer perceived value, we'll see. Yeah, I would say they're on the right track with the lyric, this idea that Cadillac's going to have bespoke switch gear and screen. Mm, didn't last long. Have you seen Blazer and Equinox inside? Oh, has it already happened? Oh, it's dear. already happened. Okay. Well, the good news <laughs> is the, the, the Celestic has very little switch gear. There's a knob. There's a few buttons for climate control and radio. Almost everything's done through monster screens. Mm-hmm. This car is more about trim than switch gear. So fingers crossed this all works out. GM, yeah. you're on the clock now. Okay. And I was um, saying to my, I say to my, my audience over on the YouTube's, uh, sorry about that. I, I believed Cadillac when they told me 
we swear nobody else is going to be getting these buttons and knobs and switches. And literally a month later, we see Blazer and Equinox, and they have the same buttons and knobs and switches. A little bit less Chrome going on, basically the same buttons and knobs and switches. Does that just mean the Equinox is awesome, or has the Cadillac switchgear been lowered to like a Chevy level? Well, this is a tricky construct, and I'll be frank on this one too. I don't think that switchgear sharing is a problem. Uh, have you seen a Volkswagen and Audi? They share switchgear. BMW, Mini, they share switchgear. Uh, until recently, until about 10 years ago, Mercedes and a Dodge Dart shared switchgear. I mean, you had Mercedes S-Class, a Dodge Dart had the same window switches. And even some current generation Chrysler products still use things like the, the steering wheel adjustment knob from a Mercedes because the same vendor does both of those switches for both companies. I don't find it personally to be a huge problem, but there are shoppers out there that will likely deride that, especially if these vehicles are sold on the same lot or very close to one another. Yeah, definitely. Oh, and remember, pre-Fiat Chrysler, Ferrari used the Chrysler U-Connect. So, yeah, I mean, Aston, <laughs> Aston Martin used Volvo, Volvo ignition keys, Volvo seat controls, the Volvo navigation system, and they cost way more than any Volvo. So it, part sharing is a thing, and it's not something that I think is a problem. But for some reason, General Motors, more than other companies, get skewered over, over the part sharing. So I had hoped that they would really try and avoid that by actually keeping these parts separate so that way they could avoid the stigma. But I think that they haven't avoided it in this case. I think they've just let it continue. It's okay if the Chevy part looks Cadillac fine. I, that's okay. I think that the problem is when this stuff moves up the food chain from Chevrolet that people have an objection. Like if I find a Chevy Equinox switch in my Cadillac and it doesn't look as good as the rest of the car, I'd be upset. But if I find mm -hmm. a Cadillac switch in my Equinox, I'm not sure I process it the same way. Yeah, it's it's that question of does adding a little bit of chrome make it a better switch? Um, it's difficult to say because in all seriousness, that was the difference between the window switch in a Dodge Dart and an S-Class of the same era. It was the chrome. You could literally pull the switch module out of an S-Class, stick it in a Dart, out of a Dart, into the S-Class. All the electrical interfaces were the same. And customers somehow didn't care that it, you know, they didn't give Mercedes a hard time on this. And I recall some people saying, oh, well, that door switch feels cheap or that window switch feels cheap in the Dodge. And then I'd say, but you didn't complain about it in the Mercedes. It's the same switch. And then later they realized, oh, my God, yes, it is actually the same switch. And it was really just a perception thing. But that's yeah, the I problem, I think, with GM yeah. is that there is this perception. Yeah. It, it, it. People remember the old GM. That's the problem. Downstreaming is fine by me. If you start at the top and then this stuff filters down to the smaller models and the cheaper models, I'm okay. It's the upstreaming when stuff mm -hmm. from cheap model finds its way into an expensive car. Like, I don't think Tesla lost one single sale because people looked in the first Model S and they're like, oh my God, that's Mercedes E-Class switchgear. Gross. Right. I think having Daimler as an early investor and the availability of that part if anything, added a little bit of a, a respectable sheen to a car that was brand new. So I think if you start up and then you punch down, that's fine. The problem is when that cheap stuff starts moving upwards. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Yeah. Speaking of cheapness, Diesel fuel is not cheap. I don't know if you guys have been watching lately, but even as fuel prices have moderated somewhat, 
in the United States in the last month. Globally, diesel fuel prices are a crisis, and nowhere is that more true than in the U.S. market right now, where the average price of diesel is about $5.3 a gallon, and the average price of gas, at least if we're to trust AAA, is about 3.8. Alex, is the light-duty diesel engine option dead just by virtue of economics? I was shocked by by that. Somehow I had not paid attention to diesel prices until you mentioned it. And oh my goodness, yes, they are bonkers, uh, especially if you live in some really inexpensive gasoline areas of the country. So for those that are in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, etc., that are over the moon with their under $4 a gallon of gasoline, making fun of people on the West Coast where we have $5 plus gallons of gasoline, uh, then you should take a look at diesel because diesel is oddly the same across the U.S. Um, national average uh, is about $5 a gallon for diesel. And in the West Coast, it's $5.99. So much closer, weirdly, than the gasoline price split. Um, a lot of this is due to supply and demand, it seems like, and some production issues, obviously, with hurricanes and everything else. But uh, it is interesting that we have seen such a resurgence in demand for diesel in, in a lot of light-duty vehicles over the last decade or so, only to see those options suddenly crater off the cliff. Uh, Stellantis, the Jeep, Dodge, Ram thing, they are finally killing the 3-liter eco-diesel. And then uh, they've also said that uh, they're going to keep the diesel only in the van lineup. So basically, it's going to go away here in very short order. General Motors is still definitely dedicated to the diesel, though. They have that in the Silverado, the Sierra 1500s, the half-ton trucks, and their full-size SUVs. So that's an interesting twist. And Ford has killed it in the F-150 in favor of hybrids and electrics and all the other things that are coming up there. Like for me, I look at what a gas turbo engine can do these days. And in like, for instance, the Colorado's old outgoing diesel engine was 369 pound feet of torque, 181 horsepower, decent numbers, decent fuel economy. But now we've got a 2.7 liter gasoline engine that takes normal gas that makes 320 horsepower and 430 pound-feet of torque. And I remember back in the 90s when, you know, it was a big deal that the Ram had Cummins power because, you know, that was probably the designer name in diesel at the time. And the heavy-duty dually Ram that was pulling car carriers <laughs> and three-axle campers and four horses at a time, that truck had 160 horsepower and 400 pound-feet of torque. And, you know, that was pretty good back then. Now we can get more than that on regular fuel out of a four-cylinder gas engine. Mm -hmm. Why would I ever want a diesel unless I'm genuinely, you know, uh, you know, industrial applications? That's that's my only intent for diesel at this point. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's an interesting twist, because if we compare, say, a good example would be Silverado, I would say 2.7 liter turbo, same one, only in Silverado versus the three liter diesel also in Silverado. There is a significant real world fuel economy advantage to the diesel. It will get you better fuel economy. Now, keep in mind, diesel has more energy per gallon, so it ought to give you better fuel economy than a gasoline engine. But the difference is going to be broader when you start towing something with a smaller displacement gasoline engines they will generally start running relatively rich in order to actually have a cooling effect on the cylinder walls. Diesels generally don't do that because they have a much lower combustion temperature. So diesel burns at a lower temperature inside diesel engines than gasoline does. So the engines don't run as hot. You tend to have fewer worries about uh, overheating in, in, in certain areas of the engine if you're under high load situations. If you're really pulling those 10,000, 15,000 pound fifth wheels, et cetera, yeah. Things are definitely going to be better in the three liter diesel. 
You're also going to get significantly better engine braking in the 3 liter diesel with the engine brake that we find in the GM. And I think that was part of why the Ford and Stellantis engines, I really liked them on level ground at the launch event. Once I got them at home, I liked them a lot less because they just cannot keep a trailer under control going downhill. There's not a lot of engine braking going on. Yeah. Same problem with the 2.7 liter turbos, to be honest, that we find in the F-150 and in the Silverado, et cetera. So there are valid reasons on either side. The trouble is fuel economy, even though it's going to be better in the diesel, it's probably never going to save you any money. Yeah, I would say this realistically. If you're doing, if you're pulling anything with a fifth wheel, that's where diesel belongs these days. Because we're already starting to see the phase out of diesel in you know what could be called light duty applications. It's gone in the Colorado. It's beginning its phase out year in the Ram 1500 and the half ton Ram. Uh, I think we're going to see a huge pullback on you know smaller cars with this type of power. And by that, I even mean things the size of a Wrangler Unlimited, because mm -hmm. uh, an automatic transmission. Pentastar 3.6 liter, six cylinder Wrangler Unlimited is rated for uh, 21 miles per gallon combined. Now, if you opt for the diesel in the same vehicle, you're going to get 25 miles per gallon combined. So it's 25 versus 21. That's a little over 19%. The problem is the premium for diesel is now over 30%. So again, unless you need mm -hmm. a huge amount of diesel torque, um, which in time, maybe a twin turbo V8 might even be able to provide or a hybridized V6 might be able to provide. For those 20, 25,000, $30,000 trailing applications where you know, you're know you a freelance car carrier, you're pulling a bunch of EV SUVs and you need that 600 horsepower, 500 horsepower, 800 pound foot of torque, um, you know, HD diesel dually pickup, obviously that's still a right. place for it. But I can't imagine another generation of light duty trucks with diesels. And I can't imagine any cars with diesels um, past this generation, even Europe, which for years had a tax structure and refineries set up to favor diesel. Mm -hmm. After the energy shocks of this past year, which have included strikes, which have included the war in Ukraine, I just don't see this ever being as popular as it was. And I see it in phase out mode going forward. Yeah, in Europe especially, it's driven by emissions. So that is an important thing to keep in mind. To a lesser extent, California has driven some of that loss in the United States because California's emission standards are different. And it is trickier for a small passenger vehicle's emissions to be in compliance with California's regulations on diesel, especially if you don't want to feed your small diesel, diesel exhaust fluid urea because uh, there's packaging issues around where, where to restore this, et cetera, just as we saw with the Volkswagen diesel scandal and the lack of Mazda diesels in the U.S., et cetera. Um, trucks, it's a little different, I would still argue. I think Silverado, it depends on how you look at the diesel. The 3-liter the in GM's lineup is largely tied with the price tag of the 6.2-liter V8, so you get to choose do you want 420 horsepower or do you want the 300 and some odd horsepower that's going to be in the next generation diesel in the Silverado with 400 and something pound-feet of torque. So you get to kind of choose there for the same price. It is worth noting that GM is giving us a second generation of that 3-liter inline 6 as well. So it is uh, going to be debuting here very, very shortly. It's going to give us more, more torque. Uh, a broader torque curve and a lot more horsepower. Uh, also improved engine braking, apparently, from what we're, we're hearing from GM. So GM does appear to be dedicated to it in some of those vehicles because it gives them higher fuel economy numbers, better cafe numbers. That's very, very important. Yeah. And there is a dedicated segment of society that likes it. 
In real-world driving, you will most likely see a bigger delta between diesel fuel economy and gasoline fuel economy in these larger vehicles because of the way the fuel economy testing cycle works and the way that real cars drive down the road. So if you're taking a look at a Suburban or a Escalade and you're debating between diesel or gasoline, you probably will save money versus the 6.2 liter V8, but not versus the 5.3 or other engine options available in that same vehicle. I think this is GM following through on a commitment that was made a long time ago, frankly. I think if the price for diesel remains between 30 and 40% uh, premium over gasoline, especially if a competing engine option can run on regular gas, mm -hmm. um, you know, I would see that as the beginning of the end of, of light duty diesels and anything you know less than a three quarter ton truck uh, just because the price is going to be exorbitant. And if you are that commercial driver and you could get away with just buying regular gas, with the miles those guys turn, especially in over-the-road driving, they definitely would. Um, so I think GM will follow through with this generation. But if five, six years from now, we still see these premiums, they'll move on to either a hybridized engine or a twin turbo of some kind. And that would be the question is, will they continue or not, which is difficult to prognosticate. I would expect diesel prices will eventually level out. Uh, there was unexpected demand, some refining issues here and there. They can always get sorted if demand continues to be at this level. So I would expect that it would levelize at some point. When that is, we don't know. Uh, but manufacturers do have pretty long design cycles, and people do love the diesel. So it's, I mean, unsurprisingly, it's an excellent diesel engine, that 3-liter three three liter light-duty diesel in the GM products. Owners absolutely love the engine, and the take rate seems to still be pretty high, even given the high diesel costs. Well, we're going to find out. Oh, and by the way, I think we were both impressed that the California premium for diesel over regular gas was only 10%. So if you're out yeah. there, it might still make a lot of sense if you're getting a 20, 25, 30% fuel economy advantage. Yeah, I was surprised by that too. A little odd that there's such a huge delta with gasoline at the moment on the West Coast, even excluding California. Uh, West Coast gasoline, Oregon, Washington, etc., is much, much more expensive than the Gulf Coast in the U.S. right now. But diesel, oddly enough, kind of, kind of close. Well, the solution there, I guess, is to just go electric, as Mercedes and Polestar have done in just about the last week. We've got a new EQE SUV and a arguably competing Polestar three. Uh, which in about three years will become the first Polestar made in the U.S. Let's start with the Polestar 3 because it's helping to launch a new brand. This is really the volume product. It's not cheap, but it is targeted towards the mainstream more or less. Yeah, volume has to be in air quotes um, because I would fully expect Polestar 2 to stay, sail off into the sunset at some point soon or be redesigned um, because this is going to be fantastically expensive compared to Polestar 2. Yes. Uh, so it's going to start over $86,000. Which shocked me, frankly, but it shouldn't shock me based on what happened to Tesla prices this year. Tesla mm -hmm. raised its average sale price 31% this year which surpasses yeah. the new car market, the used car market. And I don't know if Polestar is boxing itself and maybe Rivian too, boxing themselves into a corner with Tesla-like pricing. But I will, I will give them this. The car comes very loaded. Mm -hmm. It's only mm -hmm. dual motor. It's only two row. They are billing this as a luxury experience and they're not offering initially a single motor entry-level model, right. nor have they announced any plans to do so. I would say that the key thing to remember is that the mission of Polestar is to compete with Porsche, 
not BMW or Audi or Mercedes necessarily, you know, in an interesting twist. So, and they were upfront about that before, that that was the long-term direction of the brand, was that they would be the performance EV brand. Volvo would be the safe traditional luxury brand. So we see this general pulling away from one another as far as their market positioning goes. So I would expect to see actually higher priced Polestars in the future. Remember the Polestar 1 was quite expensive. Uh, we then had the relatively affordable, relatively speaking, Polestar 2. Uh, now we have the Polestar 3, which is more Porsche Cayenne than Mustang Mach-E in pricing. It's important to give you a sense of like what this is. It's built on the global SPA2 platform, which is shared with the next generation XC90, and they're very close. And XC90 is about 195 inches long. This is about 193. It's going to be a little bit wider. It's going to be a little bit mm -hmm. lower. Uh, it's definitely going to be a hell of a lot faster because even the most basic version has 489 horsepower mm -hmm. and 620 pound-feet of torque. Now, you can raise that to 517 and I think somewhere around like 670 pound-feet of torque. So yep. it will be a very rapid machine. Maybe not as rapid as we thought. They're talking about 4.6 seconds for the performance yep. pack with the... Yeah, fear That's not, though. Cool. As was seen with Polestar, there will be faster versions in the future. So they start in one place and then they keep building. Um, it's also interesting that it's going to be sort of the 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 two-row version of the XC90 coming soon, which is interesting. They'll share all the active safety systems with one another. Um, and they're they're going to be targeting different markets, though. This one's going to be targeting that Porsche shopper that wants faster acceleration, higher top speed than we find in any Volvo. Similar safety systems, roomier back seats, most likely. And the XC90 is going to be the family-oriented three-row luxury thing that's going to compete with somewhere between an EQE and an EQS, I guess you'd say? Yeah, it's it's an interesting vehicle on a lot of levels because they're advertising some stuff that's not really well fleshed out just yet. Uh, we know that it's got a 111 kilowatt hour battery, which is quite large for a vehicle of that size. We don't specifically know the charging rate, though they're quoting charging mm -hmm. time on a 250 kilowatt charger. So I would like to think that's going to be the charging, the peak charging rate of the vehicle. We don't know for sure. Also, they've teased the NVIDIA Drive Automotive mm -hmm. platform, which is going to do a bunch of things like monitor the vehicle's sensors and supposedly a better job of monitoring the driver's attention to the road during autonomous operation. But they haven't been too clear about what exactly all this means. Obviously, mm -hmm. the NVIDIA name is impressive, but how it's all tied together with the sensors and the software and the actual application, what it does for you tangibly. Uh, that's going to make a difference on whether this is serious Volvo type safety innovation mm -hmm. or just a gimmick, to be honest. Yeah, the charging rate is probably going to top out at around 250 uh, because we do know that it's not going to be an 800 volt architecture, as some people had guessed or hoped, I guess you'd say. So on a 400 volt nominal, I guess you'd say, because uh, actual charge voltage is higher than 400 volts usually, but about 250, 255 kilowatts is the most you can expect because of the current limit on the connectors for those. So that's probably where it's going to be, which puts it right in line if it hits the 250 mark uh, with Model Y, Model X, and Model S from Tesla. Uh, how long it will sustain that peak, we just don't know, obviously, those details yet. It is going to be built in the US, though. So uh, it is possible that future versions, if the price tag could go down, might just be able to eke out a tiny bit of tax credit uh, because it's going to be yeah. built here. 
other interesting twist, it's going to have some serious ground clearance, uh, somewhere around eight, eight and a half inches of ground clearance, which was kind of surprising. So this is not a low to the ground thing like a Mach-E or some of the other, uh, or Teslas, honestly, because the Model Y and Model X are not terribly high off the ground. This is going to be kind of like a Porsche Cayenne, where it's crazy fast, uh, handles seemingly well, but still strangely high off the ground. I'm hoping that they surprise on the high side with the range because I've seen two things. I've seen an estimated range of 300 miles, which frankly with 111 kilowatt hour battery in a midsize SUV doesn't seem like that much. And then with the performance pack, it's going to be about 270 miles. That's with the 517 mm -hmm. horsepower, the big torque output. Um, I hope that they come out pleasantly surprising or they pull a Porsche Taycan and the thing just blows away its EPA ratings. But 300 with a battery that big in a vehicle that size at this late juncture doesn't seem great. Well, I would say uh, when we take a look at 300 mile rated EVs with big batteries like this, we're talking Model X in terms of size, probably less aerodynamic than Model X. Model X really won't go 300 miles of real world range. It just won't That's do true. it. And its battery pack is about the size, a little bit smaller. Uh, so it really will depend on tire size and some of the final aerodynamic numbers. Tire size is a big thing. The moment you put big tires on something, especially big grippy tires, as this is probably going to have in the performance versions, you'll expect that fuel uh, economy rating just to, to actually absolutely drop through the floor. Even the new Kia EV6 GT, which is going to be coming up here very soon, does not have a terribly long range, even though the base versions are relatively aerodynamic. You can get over 300 miles of range out of the approximately what, 72 kilowatt hour battery somewhere on there. I believe it is maybe 77. I, someone will correct us, I'm sure, but somewhere on there, just under 80 kilowatt hours. Uh, and if you get the GT, you're really going to be talking real world range of maybe 200 miles ish by the time you yeah. get all the options on there. Aerodynamics plays such a huge role because if you look at the EQS from Mercedes, which only has about 107 kilowatt hour battery, you know, that vehicle, I mean, that vehicle is genuinely impressive. Even if you mm -hmm. buy one of the like EQS formatics, you're still going to be looking at 340, 360 miles. And again, that vehicle weighs more than this new, this new Polestar. I'm not going to call it a Volvo. Yeah. That weighs a lot more than this new Polestar. So to be able to get that kind of range out of batteries smaller than is going into this SUV, in spite of more weight, it really does show that aerodynamics is everything. And aerodynamics mm -hmm. will ultimately dictate how efficient this vehicle is. Yeah. That said, it is loaded. Factory equipment includes 21-inch wheels, LED exterior lighting, heated seats, four USB-Cs, adaptive cruise control, surround view camera. Uh, you can get Plus and Pilot. These are two feature sets that give you things like um bowers and wilkinson sound power adjustable steering column uh, soft closed doors heated steering wheel heated rear seats pilot adds all sorts of autonomy features both are going to be available right out of the gate and then there's the six thousand dollar performance pack but brembo brakes and air suspension come standard um mm -hmm. so there's a lot you're getting for your 85 yep. grand um yeah yeah. It, I'm I'm intrigued to see how this this continual separation goes because it is also the first Polestar that doesn't look like a Volvo if you squint. It definitely has its own thing. There are still some design cues if you look closely. You gotta you know if you're if you're not squinting, you can see there's a relationship. But you know, it uh, it it definitely is a different different direction for them. What the XC90 looks like, we don't know whether it's going to follow some of the interior design of this or not. But the exterior has more of its own thing going on. Uh, I especially find it intriguing that Polestar feels the need to label things. Um, like if you look at the front end close up, 
pictures of the Polestar uh, 3. It has like a, a the, the radar sensor up front and then printed on the bumper, it says front sensor. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> like, had stuff what? like that on the Polestar <laughs> 1 where there'd be a sticker on the side of the car yeah. that's carbon fiber body. Yes. Oh, okay. Like, oh, okay. hey, here's the front sensor and it's like camera. Hey, woo. Um, so I'm a little bit surprised by that. It seems kind of um, kitschy, if in a way, but also I guess more techy than than Volvo. Who knows how that's going to go? Um, but it does give us some window into what we might expect in Volvo's next product, since we do finally have a power steering column, something that no Volvo has had for whatever reason. Also, the soft closed doors, etc. Yeah, interesting that as soon as this uh, Polestar 3 arrives, it immediately has a rival from Mercedes-Benz because within about four inches of each other, maybe even like two or three, we have the EQE SUV and the Polestar 3, similarly sized, likely to be, they're going to have some price overlap there and there's going to be some performance overlap. I'm starting to think that this is like the new E-Class, this mid-size electric SUV thing. Five, six, seven years down the line, I think the person who bought that or a 5 Series is going to be buying this. I definitely agree. And I'm really intrigued to see in this weird duo, which one is going to be the Mercedes competitor? Is it going to be the Volvo? Is it going to be the Polestar? And what does that mean for the other brother or sister in this relationship? Um, are we really going to be seeing this targeting a future Porsche midsize SUV that's an electric car and then Volvo's taking on Mercedes? Or is it this is taking on Mercedes and the Volvo is, I don't know, an electric Q7 or something. It's a very confusing thing because all we know is that the Polestar is going to start at 85,000, 86,000. Obviously, there's going to be a destination in there, too. Uh, the EQE SUV is going to start around 80,000, 80 to 85,000 based on estimates. A lot of the same stuff, highly tech oriented autonomy. Mm -hmm. Um, you're going to have the ability to get several different levels of performance and power up to 700 horsepower if you want to go AMG. The AMG makes even more if you put it in a boost mode. <laughs> screens, obviously, because, you know, screens uber ales in 2022. But these are very similar vehicles. They're shooting right at the same kind of customer. And I guess the ultimate irony is that in 2024, mid-2024, when the Volvo finally starts production in South Carolina, both of these vehicles are going to be made in the U.S. They're not going to be mm -hmm. eligible for any kind of incentive, but at least they're going to be made here. Yes, uh, the Volvo probably has a better chance of being eligible for an incentive in a base trim because it's possible it might be $80,000 or under. Um, exactly what that, how that really starts out, we won't know. It also will depend on where the battery is manufactured, et cetera, and those details we don't have just yet. Uh, but it yeah. is interesting that they're moving production to the U.S. for both of these models. Uh, one common complaint uh, with the Polestar 2 from a certain segment of, of the automotive buying public has been that it's built in China. Um, and now it will go from, from there to the U.S. And uh, this will be one of the worldwide production locations. It will be built in multiple different Volvo factories, uh, along with the XC90 and other large platform battery electric Volvos. Yeah, if, you're, if this is something that's important to you, um, obviously check the VIN number. That's how you can always tell. You won't have to look until mid-2024 when production of the Polestar 3 actually starts in Ridgeville, South Carolina. And, of course, Mercedes has been down in Alabama yep. and Tuscaloosa forever, so that's going to happen right out of the gate. A little bit disappointed with the EQE SUV. It's going to have a 90.6 kilowatt-hour lithium-ion battery, which seems like it's a little bit on the short end for, you know, 
2022, mm -hmm. much less 2023. And they're talking about 170 kilowatt quick charging, which doesn't seem all that quick either. Yeah, it's going to depend on on how quickly the battery will will reach that charge rate and how long it will maintain it. So in the EQS, for instance, its number does not appear terribly fantastic, but it really does charge quickly because it holds that that charge rate for a really long time. We see something very similar in the BMW i4. Oddly enough, not in the BMW iX, which blows my mind, but that's a whole other story. So both of them hit approximately 200 kilowatts and then we'll just rumble along there for a good long time, yielding actually a faster charge time in the EQS than a comparable Tesla at the moment. Um, whether or not that applies to the EQE, we don't know, but it's possible that, that Mercedes was similarly aggressive with that charging rate. Most batteries will really start drastically falling off. The, the charger will really start to fall off at around 50%. So it depends on what you want out of your car. If you want to go from 10% to 40% real super fast, obviously it's going to go faster in something with a higher peak rate. But if you're interested in going 10% to 80%, it may actually happen faster in a vehicle like that that maintains a moderate charging rate across a really broad plateau versus something that peaks early and is, is over with quickly. And that's very, very true, because one of the only virtues of the Audi e-tron, the first generation Audi e-tron, was that despite the 150 kilowatt hour peak charging rate, it did an incredible job of sustaining that charge rate to the point that some of these things were still charging. And people have verified this at 50 kilowatts with 99 percent state of charge, which is unheard mm -hmm. of. So even if you have a modest peak charge rate, you can do incredible things in terms of aggregate charge time just by mm -hmm. sustaining it. So we're right. not going to judge immediately, not out of the gate, especially given Mercedes track record with the EQS and the EQS SUV. Um, but it is something to think about. Uh, I would also say this. You're going to have a lot more options buying the Mercedes because unlike Polestar, Mercedes is absolutely offering a single motor model. And with mm -hmm. domestic production, a target starting price of $80,000, it's not impossible to envision them shooting on the low end for a little bit of incentive access. Right. And you're probably going to find slightly better availability with them, certainly more options and more gadgets and gizmos to choose from. Whether or not the fully loaded product will have as many as the Polestar, we don't know, but there's likely going to be more variation. So if you really want a feature or you really don't want a feature, it's probably going to be easier to adjust the Mercedes options list. Yeah, also important to remember that if you do want to get it in dual motor, full fat version, you know, but you don't want to go a AMG. AMG would be great, but it's going to add a huge price delta. But you're going to be looking at about 536 horsepower, 630, 640 pound-feet of torque. But with the weight of these things, uh, none of them are really drag racers. I will say this, though, that if you get the 500 formatic, you will go from 0 to 60 in 4.6 seconds, which is the same as Polestar is claiming for the performance pack mm -hmm. on the Polestar 3. So there is a lot of overlap between these vehicles. The Mercedes is probably going to be more traditionally luxurious with a Mercedes-style interior, hyperscreen will be an option. So you're going to have, in all mm -hmm. likelihood, more of, I would say, a less minimal and more overtly luxurious experience in the Mercedes, whereas Polestar, for all their international presence, it's still going to be pretty much Scandinavian design. Yes, it's going to be quite minimalistic in terms of its design. Um, and colder, I guess, would be the best way to describe it, because they're trying to go after this cool and modern theme. And if you want warmer, richer interior tones, you're going to find those in the corollary Volvo model. 
Yeah, and hey, if you do want to go AMG, you know, you're going to be looking at over 700 horsepower, 700 pound-feet of torque. Uh, performance number is yet to be ascertained, but the option is there. As Alex mm -hmm. mentioned, Polestar is going to be offering hotter versions of the Polestar 3. I think their future profitability probably depends on having those upper-level trims and engine options. Uh, so definitely keep an eye on that, but also the fact that Polestar is going to be rolling out a spectacular number of cars in the coming years. Mm -hmm. The four, the five, the six, you're going to get sedans, crossovers, and convertibles, I believe, respectively. Yes. Four, five, six. It's going to be a roadster. Um, and if you want less of a traditional dealer experience, there's going to be Polestar. It is still technically a dealership model, but the structure is really interesting and strange. Um, so it's going to be basically at MSRP. Theoretically, there's an ability for a market, but it doesn't seem like that's occurring at all with Polestar. They really have a lid on those arrangements there. And of course, it's going to be the full pickup and delivery thing. So if you want to have your car picked up for service, etc., um, there's actually no ability right now within the Polestar network to even take your car somewhere for service. They have to pick it up from you. Um, and the buying and sales experience is going to be more Tesla, more Rivian-like, where you go into a showroom and uh, there's a very limited number of vehicles to choose from. They really want you to do the order thing and pull from inventory somewhere, et cetera. So that experience is going to be different than we find in the Mercedes shopping experience. Yeah, we don't have any real range estimates for the Mercedes, but 342 WLTP is what's being estimated, which frankly is probably a whole lot less than the 300 estimated for the Polestar. So expect yeah. that one to come up a little bit short. I would say real world, you're looking at like 270, 280. Probably, yeah. It's probably going to be a decent difference between the two. Uh, I, I would probably think it's going to be somewhere around 30 miles, maybe 30, 40 miles of, of range difference. So, Alex, where do people go if they want to find us online? All of your fun favorite podcast locations, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, etc. If you're watching this on YouTube, if you're listening to us, you can find us on the YouTube channel if you want to see our air quotes. You can also find us at the Alex and Autos YouTube channel, the EV Buyer's Guide YouTube channel, and of course, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all of their social places. Toodaloo.